This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Microchips are both important and in short supply. So... How important and what can be done to make them more plentiful? Also, what are the geopolitical implications of having the production of microchips concentrated in relatively few hands, which is what's happened? Well, for enlightenment on these issues, I'm joined today by Julian Kamasa, who researches the microchip for the think tank of the Centre for Security Studies in Zurich. So welcome to you. Thanks, Owen, for having me. And just first of all, what exactly is a microchip? Well, microchip is is basically a very indispensable uh, part of of daily life. In fact, they are built into almost all kinds of modern devices. Think of fridges, think of washing machines. They are in your computer, in your smartphone, in your cars. You have loads of them. Uh, What they do there is they perform essential control, computing and storage function. Let me me give you an example here. For example, the the, uh, modern systems in cars, for example, they wouldn't work without microchips. We see that now in cars made in Russia quite famously, what what is not possible with the absence of of high tech. And that's basically a a car which is is like uh, one of the 1960s. That's interesting. So you're saying that Russian cars tend not to have microchips now, and therefore, what, their braking systems aren't as good and their various other functions don't work as well? Yes, also uh, systems that would prevent more pollution. This Lada now they are they are selling. It does not have any emergency assistance systems. Uh, airbags, I think, are missing. AC is missing. So you know all kinds of steering functions. Uh, they, they run on chips. Uh, also, uh, to give you an example, the water boiling unit in a coffee machine is also regulated by a chip. Or uh, if you want to generate electricity from a, a solar panel, you need a chip as well. So they're in our daily lives and they become apparent when they're absent, essentially. Yeah. And is it right to think of them as like mini computers? Is that basically... One, one way to look at it. I wouldn't necessarily uh, go as far as to to refer to them as mini computers, but um, there are different kinds of chips, and they are uh, low end chips which basically regulate the temperature, for example, and that is their only task. Or in a washing machine, they also make sure that the task is done. And how is that possible? It's uh, possible uh, through semiconducting material, 
which conducts small amounts of electricity and carries out tasks. Hence, semiconductors and chips are referred to interchangeably. But I'll use the term chip because it's just a bit shorter and easier. Yeah, I was wondering about that because there's microchips, there's semiconductors, there's microprocessors. Silicon chips is the same as chips, isn't it? So if you look at semiconductors and microprocessors, can you help us with what are the slight distinctions there? Well, a microprocessor is, I would say, it's a bit like a human's brain. It processes incoming information. It can execute tasks. It, it, it can perform operation. But unlike humans, a microprocessor is not per se intelligent. It cannot think freely and critically reflect upon things. Uh, however, it can process huge amounts of data which our brains would be uh, overwhelmed with. And of course, uh, when you look at progress in computing power enabled, uh, what we call in AI, artificial intelligence uh, by now. And uh, this is thanks to microprocessors and they run on high performance chips, on high end chips. That's a different kind of chips than the low end ones, which just do one task. So the way to see it is that the microchip is, the, is, 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 a, is a piece, is a part of a microprocessor. Yes, and uh, a microprocessor wouldn't run without that high-end chip. And a lot of function is in our daily life, thanks to, to AI and machine learning, wouldn't run without these powerful uh, microprocessors. Uh, think of Google Maps and navigation, for example. That's based on, on making sense, uh, making predictions based on the current assessment of the situation. Netflix, Spotify too, uh, suggests that whoever is listening to this very podcast right now may like similar podcasts uh, to this one. So this is all thanks to computers becoming more intelligent. And, and, okay, that's the microprocessor. And then if I asked you about the semiconductor, what's the difference between the semiconductor and the microchip? There is really none. It's it's a question of, of terminology. You know, a semiconductor is inside a chip. It, it conducts these amounts of electricity and it can decide if there is conduction of electricity or no conduction on, on this binary principle. And it's made of semiconducting materials such as uh, silicon, so, you know, it's, it's a bit of uh, a basis for a chip, but uh, without the semiconductor, you wouldn't have a chip, but uh, without the chip, you wouldn't have a semiconductor. So, yeah, now I got it. So we, we're starting with a semiconductor and then we're, we're getting a chip and then we're on to the microprocessor. So that, that's, that's great. So, so now then, uh, if we just now talk about the chips, what is the difficulty in making them? They, they, they take a long time to make, don't they? They do, and that is due to the fact that the industry is quite special. Very simplified, and, and roughly speaking, there are three steps of the chip supply chain. First, you design a chip, then you produce it, and then you assemble it. The first two are called the so-called front end of the process, while assembly is considered to be the back end. The reality is, however, far more complex than these three steps, because uh, take production, for example, uh, this step itself consists of over 1,000 steps using more than 500 machines. Some of this equipment, just one machine, 
has a similar amount of suppliers and so on. So it's a very complex industry. If you were, let's say, uh, a car manufacturer and you wanted some particularly sophisticated new microchip to perform some function and you went to you know the factory the, the people who make microchips from the moment you asked them look i need this new microchip to do this how long would it take for that microchip to arrive before it arrives in, in the car factory well it depends what kind of infrastructure is is already in place because the the production process alone is about three to four months that's just at the fabrication plant. But that assumes that the fabrication plant is standing there on the ground, has all necessary equipment, and uh, it can run 24-7. It has personnel, of course, as well to, to run. This is not always the case. And building a fabrication plant takes uh, a minimum amount of two years, but it can take up to four years until it's operational. And what you need to factor in as well is the amount of time for chip design. Chip design is is very R&D intensive. You need to, to design the software for the chip. You know, to, to simplify things, chip design is, is a bit like uh, the principle of function uh, follows form. <laughs> so you need, to, you need to design a chip and ask yourself, what, what is it supposed to do? And you need to ask yourself this quite some time in advance, because sometimes you don't have a fabrication plant that is able to make that chip. So in a way, chip designers need to anticipate a lot, or they're very confident, like Apple, to say, we're going to set this standard in five years, and we're going to find a manufacturer that basically from scratch makes a fabrication plant just for us, for this very chip. And then we're going to set standards and make something great, like these uh, famous M1 and M2 chips, which are now uh, sold by Apple. So this is the way to go. And just the chip design of, of the latest and most sophisticated uh, chips is, is a cost of 500 million US dollars. And the fabrication plant for this chip costs about 20 billion US dollars. And uh, the return of this investment is a matter of years. So uh, this kind of shows you how high the, the barriers to entry are. But now back to your question, as a, as a car manufacturer, you don't necessarily need uh, chips like, like Apple does. Uh, the, the chips used in cars are rather on the low end of, of things. So there you just need a good working relationship and, and a close one with the fabrication plants. So if a car manufacturer is on the low end of this, what would be a high-end chip customer? Uh, companies that, that do uh, microprocessors, for example. We have some of them, graphics, you know, high resolution, uh, the top end of, of things, uh, memory, storage, uh, functions, basically everything that is needed for high-performance computers. And as we see, the... the what, what technology is able to, to do in, in our lives, 
it requires high computing power. It requires very high performance chips and uh, also energy efficient chips, because otherwise we would have even bigger problems with energy scarcity. Now, then uh, people may have heard of Moore's law, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is this this idea that the microchip becomes, I think, twice as efficient every two years. And, uh, you know, it held true for a remarkably long time. Is, is that still holding true? Or is Moore's law, you know, is it past its sell-by date? So far, it, it is still true, yes, at least and to a high extent, thanks to a European uh, company called ASML, which is based in the Netherlands. Why is that the case? Because this company provides machines which are, they are indispensable for the production process, because uh, this equipment, uh, the so-called extreme ultraviolet lithography, it enables to increase this number of transistors on a wafer and only because of this increase Moore's law I would say is still true there are however opinions that this development may reach its tipping point maybe also already in this decade because when more transistor density requires so much cooling power that this energy would have to be used at the expense of energy needed for the transistor itself then Moore's law might basically meet the realities of what we call trade-offs. That's right. You mean you explained it better? Because actually, what he what Moore said was the number of transistors on the microchip would double exactly. every two years. Yeah. So, so okay. Now then, just we're going to sort of get into the geopolitics of this now, having worked out what these things are and how how they're used. So, uh, one sort of technical issue, which is underpinning a lot of the geopolitical questions. Can you fit surveillance systems, surveillance channels, as it were, on chips? Because obviously, if you can, that is very, very important. And it, it, it makes a big difference to a lot of things. If a country can produce a chip and sell it to another country, can they gather information from that chip as, as it's used? I think what you're referring here to is, is this technical term, backdoors in hardware, right? It is problematic for three reasons. First, antivirus systems cannot detect it because it is built in the hardware. It happens, uh, for secondly, uh, at manufacturing stage. And uh, thirdly, it can uh, therefore uh, circumvent encryption systems. So yes, it is possible. But, and there's a big but, <laughs> the malicious actor in question, whoever that is, this actor would have to know the exact purpose of a chips in advance and be somewhat involved in this manufacturing process of this very specific type of chip. You know, to give you an example, it is of little use to, to fit a surveillance system and monitor the temperature of someone's fridge. More interesting would be to fit surveillance in memory chips, for instance. But then again, memory chips for whom? And I doubt that this is very transparently known in a manufacturing plant or in an assembly uh, plant. 
You can also install backdoors and servers or routers. Uh, you don't have to go in, in, into chips. Snowden's revelation about these uh, NSA practices uh, revealed uh, that you can do a lot of damage uh, doing this in servers and routers. And this is a bit easier because you basically you open a package and in, in a postal delivery and as a security agency, you can have probably access to this, although uh, it's, it's doubtful if that is, is legal in all kinds of systems. But, uh, you know, the problem is out there for a decade. And uh, of course, there are fears in the US about uh, such Chinese activities. But what is also interesting that there have been developed some some quite effective countermeasures. One of it is, is the so-called Typographic X-ray laminography. Now, this is a super technical term. Uh, I, I try to explain it uh, in simpler uh, ways. It is quite similar to biometric verification of our fingerprints. So you can make a 3D scan of a chip and verify if there were installed backdoors. So, you know, it it is a fear. But then again, when you look at the barriers to entry, this actor needs to be at the right time in the right place. So personally, I think installing backdoors in software might be easier for a malicious actor. That's very interesting. But just to be clear, if, let's say China, was making a mobile phone for the American market and, and it was producing the chips in China then presumably it, that if that whole process is occurring in China, they know perfectly well what the chip is for, then they could put a backdoor into that phone. Is that right? Yes. Right. Well, that does seem quite important. I mean, that, 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 that does have a lot of uh, implications then, doesn't I mean, it? They could, and uh, it's, it's not a surprise that the uh, current US administration banned all kinds of Huawei equipment just most recently. There has been no proof that this uh, practice happened but i guess their their rationale is we don't want to wait for proof we we have reasons to to believe this could happen and when it happens is already too late and the us has its own uh, tech supply uh, chain they have uh, very powerful uh, tech companies so they are in the position to exclude these companies. Uh, other countries are not in this position, of course. Exactly. Well, let's get on to that now and ask who's making them and, and how, how all that works. So which countries can make chips? Well, a whole range of them, but it depends which kind of chips do you refer to. I'll start with the high-end ones. And here, Taiwan and South Korea stand out. Taiwan, the, the famous company TSMC, it's huge. It's a huge company. The annual revenue is, is about $70 billion. So very, very lucrative business. They control about 60% of this uh, contract manufacturing market. And TSMC is basically specialized in, in the high-end chips, meaning uh, 10 nanometers and, and less. 
Now, just in order to to avoid confusion, nanometers has no uh, physical, uh, it does not refer to any physical features. It's a marketing term for for a certain process, how you make the chips, and it's marketing term for how powerful these chips are. So uh, five nanometers or three nanometers doesn't mean the chips are getting smaller or smaller. It's just marketing terminology. And TNSFC as a, as a contract manufacturer is specialized on going into these high performance chips. It's no coincidence that TSMC's uh, most important customer is Apple. 25% of TSMC's revenue is thanks to Apple. TSMC's hardest competitor is Samsung, which is also foundry, but also a so-called integrated device manufacturer. These IDMs are, are companies which cover all kinds of steps from chip design to manufacturing up to assembly, while TSMC is only active in fabrication. So the most Advanced chips are made in Taiwan and South Korea, but also in the US. We have a lot of chips made uh, in Europe as well, but they are not necessarily uh, the most advanced one. Japan as well has, has some capacities. Yeah, and just to be clear about this distinction, Samsung can do the whole process. Yes. And in Taiwan, I think this is what you call a foundry. They yes. just have a foundry, which makes them. But who does the other steps in the process for the Taiwanese then? Well, Apple designs its own chips, for example. Apple designs its own chips, and they come to TSMC uh, saying, you know, we have this chip design. Please build a factory for us. We want to make them. And then uh, a so-called outsourced uh, uh, semiconductor assembly and testing company does the whole assembly. So uh, to explain it a bit clearer, there are currently two business operating models in the chip industry. One is the traditional one of these IDMs, companies like Intel, which cover most of the steps. They are still reliant on suppliers, of course, but they cover and are able to to do most of the chips. And then the second business model, which uh, came up with with the most advanced chips, where there is a high degree of specialization and division of labor, where there's only one company highly specialized on one task, such as TSMC. Now, what's a bit surprising about what you said is that I think in every other field since the Second World War, let's say, the United States has led the way in terms of not just the R&D, but also the production. You know, you would expect this very high tech industry to be based in the US. Why didn't that happen? Well, it did happen. And uh, quite interestingly, it's it's not the only sector this uh, development shifted to Asia. The US is, is the world's uh, leading nation when it comes to chip design. And chip design is crucial because it sets the standards. And, you know, to tell you why this is important, um, when the US cuts off Chinese companies from its own chip design, which includes intellectual property, software, then this hurts. Because if you don't have this, you can't produce chips. You know, it's it's like the foundation to 
to have know-how about uh, how things work. And the US is leading here. It's also leading in this IDM business. Uh, it, US companies have about 50% market share there. It's rather the contract factoring, uh, contract uh, manufacturing, where South Korea and especially Taiwan are leading and uh, the US is lagging behind. But the customers for these foundries are still uh, US-based. So let's not get confused here. The US is still in a leading position. They know a lot about this industry. And uh, this is also reflecting uh, reflected in export control measures uh, targeting China, targeting China where it hurts, where China does not have anything to come up against uh, because they are still reliant on U.S. know-how. Okay, so so to be quite specific about it then, the thing the U.S. lags in is, is these foundries. Is that right? Where, the, where yes. they actually make the things? Yes. Okay. And why did that happen? That happened for, for a variety of, of reasons. I think cost, cost is one thing because it was just cheaper to do it in Taiwan. Lack of industrial uh, policy is another explanation because this was done both in Taiwan and South Korea and heavily in China. But Taiwan proved to be quite effective in, in building up an interesting ecosystem to uh, to be in a powerful position for this business. It's, it, Taiwan is not only uh, powerful in the foundry business, it has a whole ecosystem uh, built around it. So they have also some very important chip designers and chemicals needed for it, machines uh, and, and assembly. So it's a bit a uh, cost argument because as long, and that's not just the US that didn't do it, uh, also Europe, and now they're catching up with all kinds of chips acts to incentivize companies to invest on their territory. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about Europe in a moment, but just ju- just on the US, is there an effort in the US to get foundries built there? There is, and uh, I mean part of of this uh, of this uh, Chips Act, which um, has a total volume of what uh, forty or even uh, fifty billion US dollars, is subsidizing companies, foundry companies especially, to invest in the US. So what happened is that uh, TSMC is about to make five nanometer uh, chips uh, in a plant in, in Arizona. This is partly due to this CHIPS Act, but also partly uh, to Apple seeing some advantages and, and also some marketing advantages of saying, you know, our iPhone was almost entirely made in the US. It's had, it has chips made in the US. That's that's a good selling point. And and of course, Apple is pushing TSMC to go more sophisticated. So uh, T- uh, TSMC has doubled down on, on this investment in Arizona, and it is planning to open a second production facility for four nanometer and three nanometer chips uh, from 2024 onwards. The total investment sum for TSMC is, is 40 billion US dollars. And this is quite a win for the US. Interesting, by the way, before I forget it, when you look at investment, uh, there is Moore's law, but uh, when this might come to an end, you, you might have another development where, where something doubles, and that's a cost 
to to go more sophisticated and here we see the difference of of investment costs needed from the step of 7 to 5 nanometers they basically double for chip design and for a fabrication plant and this has not been the case in in previous developments so only for a difference of of two uh, so-called uh, process node uh, nanometers you need to double the expense. Analysts are quite certain that this might continue. What is the consequence of that? It's basically that TSMC and and Samsung have some near monopoly there to go more sophisticated, while even for the most powerful chip-making companies, it's very hard to go into this business Intel, for example, is a market leader, a global market leader, but it lags about three years behind uh, TSMC and Samsung. Yeah, well, I mean, let me just sort of put, put, put the the Asian geopolitical question to you, US Asian, which is, is a pretty obvious one, that if Xi Jinping in China decided to take over Taiwan, what would the implication be? the US in terms of chips. I mean, they're getting these plants in Arizona, which presumably after a time they'd be able to run without Taiwanese support, would they? So is the US doing this largely to protect itself against that eventuality? Yes and no. I mean, when you look at the numbers, uh, Taiwan is the leading nation for uh, this high-end foundry wafer production. And, you know, the plan of TSMC in Arizona is to make 600,000 wafers per year, while it makes 2 million wafers in Taiwan only in one month. So when you you look at these uh, dimensions... Of course, yes, you can do reshoring, but this is only the tip of the iceberg. This is 3% of, of TSMC's output, maybe in the US. There's also a, a new factory uh, plant in Japan. TSMC has been uh, evaluating Germany as a location, but it it is when you look at the speeches by its CEO, uh, Taiwan is still a major location. You know, when you when you look at this and uh, when you look at what might happen, or or just do a thought experiment, uh, like like CSIS has has been doing with this uh, war gaming, the consequences would be devastating. I mean, we already see what what is happening now um, with uh, with Russia's illegal war in Ukraine, but uh, Taiwan is is a different kind of of actor. It's super important for the global economy, so uh, that would be devastating. However. <laughs> The more optimist message is, uh, and and uh, the keyword here is silicon shield. So uh, that refers to Taiwan being too important for the world's supply of chips to be attacked. And China is in a bit of dilemma here, because on the one hand, it is very dependent on the world economy. The, the whole social contract between the party and citizens is based on economic growth, because if there is no growth, what can a party offer its citizens, right? On the other hand, the rhetoric concerning the status of Taiwan has become ever more aggressive. But uh, if we look at the effect on the world economy, 
an invasion of Taiwan would be devastating and it would hurt China. And as long as China is not fully self-reliant in this chip industry, it would basically cut itself off uh, its own ambition to become autonomous. Think of this famous Made in China 2025 policy. This is already impossible to achieve. The US has slowed down China's progress, and some people think uh, it has done so deliberately to to gain time for Taiwan to, to slow down China's progress. Because as long as China is not decoupled from the US, uh, from Europe, from Taiwan, I would say an invasion would backfire on China. And then the question is, is it, is it rhetorics now? Is it, is it domestic policy problems related to, to the whole coronavirus uh, pandemic that uh, she wants to, to you know, rally the people behind him uh, with this uh, Taiwan policy? It might be the case, yes. But uh, we, might, we might have some certainty that what, what is being said and what is being done are two kind of uh, things. That's the, the optimistic version speaking here, of course. There's obviously very delicate balances uh, going on. I, I did say I'd ask you about Europe. So Taiwan and South Korea, China, you've talked about... Well, actually, we haven't really asked how much China is doing internally, but you're saying basically they don't have control of the whole process yet or anything like it. And the US uh, trying to catch up with uh, its Asian competitors. So what about Europe? Where, where do they stand in the rankings of chip production? What can they do? What can't they do? Well, Europe is, yeah, let's put it this way, in, a, in somewhat of an awkward position here because it does not really have a high-end electronics industry. We don't have European Apple or, or Samsung. Supercomputers are made elsewhere. So you need to look at the European industry, which is it's it's anything but low tech either. Don't don't get me wrong here, but the industry that has suffered is you know car makers, for example, and uh, there has been a multitude of reasons why these shortages happened, but little of them had anything to do that there were not enough production facilities in Europe. And I doubt that what is being said now in in uh, ambitious EU commissioners' speeches is really going to make a difference. To me, it sounds a bit like they they want to to enter this race towards towards the most advanced microchips, and uh, saying things like we must invest more to produce the, the world's most advanced chips in Europe, rather than what I would prefer. It let us bring chip assembly, for example, closer to our industry. Let us look at the supply chain. Let us fix uh, choke points around there. Let us let us fix the weak links there, where there's no uh, resilience due to a lack of redundancies, and and let's create production facilities for our industrial needs. This I don't really hear in these speeches. And that is a bit problematic because uh, supply security is not determined by nanometers in any way. 
the shortage which occurred in, in, in Europe had different reasons. And Europe, uh, don't get me wrong here again, it has quite important players as well. It, I already mentioned the ASML. It's it's a crucial supplier of, of chip production equipment. Uh, one machine, one EUV machine, uh, costs 150 million euros. And it's, it's high in demand. And without it, uh, TSMC and Samsung would not be able to produce the most advanced chips. There are also uh, important chemical companies, traditional ones in Germany, for example, uh, BASF, Linde, or, or Merck, and they are crucial suppliers of, of chip production. Um, in Germany, you also have Siltronic, for example, which provides wafers uh, for this chip production. ST Microelectronics, a Franco-Italian company, which is headquartered in Switzerland, is, is Europe's largest uh, IDM. And in the UK as well, there are two companies with uh, quite some in- importance for in- uh, intellectual property. Still, of course, the, this ecosystem is not comparable uh, with that of, of the US, Taiwan or South Korea. But does it have to be comparable? I, I would say no. You know, I get your point about that. You're saying you know, that maybe Europe should concentrate on the lower end stuff they actually need rather than the, 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 the high end stuff. But on, on the shortage, I was going to ask you about that. And I, I gather from what you just said that the shortage was more in the lower end chips. Why did it occur, though? I mean, in most industries, over time, supply does match up with demand. Why didn't that happen in the chip industry? I would say uh, with uh, with regards to, to uh, the global situation, and I, I can come back to Europe then, they, there are four reasons. The first reason is, is this very fragile nature of the chip supply chain. Bear in mind, uh, as I told you, there are many suppliers, a high degree of specialization, high degree of labor division, also, it's worth mentioning that the purity requirements in a fabrication lab are very, very high. You need dust-free air, and dust-free means uh, air a thousand times cleaner than in a modern uh, surgery department. That is very, very clean air, and you need stable temperature. And if, if only some of it deviates, this, this wafer which, uh, which uh, transistors are put on, uh, it's unusable. So you have to start from scratch. Just to give you an example how delicate this process is. And, uh, you know, with high specialization in, in normal times, this is very efficient. But in, in the times of crises and uncertainties, there are little redundancies and uh, little resilience. And when only one company can carry out a task, which does not even have to be critical or high-end in nature, and this one company gets into trouble for whatever reason, the whole supply chain is disrupted. This has been uh, the case uh, for for a Japanese company, Ajinomoto, which is a global player from uh, MSG, monosodium glutamate. But a side product of this company is interlayer insulating material called uh, ABF. Uh, it's uh, Ajinomoto build-up film. And this is needed for the assembly, the last stage of, of high-performance uh, central processor units. And uh, this ABF is, is not very lucrative for this uh, Japanese company. And therefore, for example, scaling up production of this ABF was not a top 
business priority. So what what happened during uh, the height of, of this shortage was that the chips were made, they were ready to, to be assembled, but they were waiting at this assembly for this cheap but rare insulating material. As a consequence, uh, last summer, Intel has announced to integrate uh, ABF capacities in its assembly and testing facilities in, in Vietnam in order to uh, reduce these dependencies. So that's the first reason. It's a very fragile industry. And on top of that, which, you know, that's just a structural problem, which is present for years. On top of that came a geopolitical rivalry, which intensified. It, it started under Obama, but it really intensified uh, under President Trump, former President Trump. And, and this rivalry between China and the US is, is also a, a great deal about who has the technological edge. And here, uh, what, what happened is that this export control regime from the US had the effect, uh, it happened in 2019, that a lot of Chinese companies feared that uh, there might be more. And what do you do when someone, when there's a threat looming that you might be cut off chips? You you buy them and you stockpile them. <laughs> and this, of course, has uh, a global effect that when a huge country like China starts uh, piling up uh, US chips uh, in stock, there's an increased demands, demand for chips uh, and a and, uh, shortage of supply. And this was already before the pandemic broke out. Now the pandemic in combination with this uh, fragile nature of the supply chain on top of this stockpiling <laughs> meant that there, uh, the, there was a huge market imbalance. And, and not only in the chip industry, uh, think of the mask business, for example, but Unlike the chip business, which it cannot catch up, it cannot scale up production, like uh, making these face masks, it it was not able to catch up. And then again, you had risen demand for, for equipment needed for, for home office, for example, or electronic home entertainment purposes, such as gaming consoles. So this came during the, the coronavirus and a lot of car manufacturers uh, cancelled their chip orders because they they thought that demand will be will be low for for a long time but demand actually uh, went up quicker than they thought and these chips were already the cancelled one built in elsewhere for example, regulating the temperature in in a laptop somewhere in, in, in someone's home office. So <laughs> that was, for example, the problem for, for the European car makers. And fourth, on top of everything, there comes climate change. And, and with climate change, there come increased uh, extreme weather events, which happened throughout the year 2021 uh, at quite important chip production locations. You probably remember the, the winter storm in Texas leading to power outages. Now, these outages had severe consequences for uh, Texas-based chip fabrication plants uh, run by Samsung, NXP or, or Infineon. The, the latter two are very important chip suppliers for the car making industry. Uh, in Taiwan as well, insufficient winter rain amounts uh, resulted in droughts. And this has consequences for both the water supply and hydroelectric power supply. 
as a consequence, uh, there were power outages in, in TSMC's chip fabrication plants. And as I told you, you need stable temperatures. So when you have a power outage, the whole fabrication process is, is lost. You need to start from scratch. So there are basically four reasons that led to this huge global shortage. And in Europe, uh, I think the car makers made poor judgments about about, uh, demands and also relied uh, a great deal on this principle of just-in-time production. Well, that's very, that, that really helps us understand the industry, actually, just hearing those, those vulnerabilities. And, and, well, finally, let me just ask you to look ahead. I, I guess, you know, beyond the risk of shortages and surveillance issues, the, the big thing is, might this lead to conflict? Are chips so important that they could be the basis of armed conflict? You say you've done some war gaming in your, in your think tank. What, what, what's, your, what's your view on it? Personally, I'm I'm always cautious about using words such as war. So this use in headlines of trade war and, and tech cold war and, and chip war, I'm not a big fan of it because it is misleading. I think chip wars or, or trade wars... Um, you know, it's it's a bit it's a bit dangerous to to use these terminologies, and and to be fair, you know these these kind of chip shortages I, I was speaking about, it's still a very so-called first world problem. It's a luxury to wait for your car. It's a luxury to wait for your laptop. It's luxury to to wait two months more for your coffee machine. The real problem is uh, when you don't have electricity or warm water, like in Ukraine. The real problem is uh, when you don't have food. These are real shortages. So we need to distinguish here about basic needs and and luxury needs. And I think for basic needs, uh, the threshold to to go to war is is uh, substantially higher than than about supercomputers and and laptops. And, um, you know, I've spoken about this silicon shield uh, of of Taiwan. Why is that important? It might also discourage China of of invading Taiwan, because what is logical, what Taiwan would do is to to destroy important chip uh, making facilities before the enemy reaches hands on them either equipment, machine, or know-how. So it's basically raising the costs uh, for an invader, discourage them to, to do that. It's, you know, well, in, in, in the battlefield, uh, you, you destroy bridges to, to uh, you know, make more obstacles. And, and in the high-tech industry, you can threaten to, to destroy it. And, and with that, uh, everyone goes down. <laughs> So I I don't think you you would expect um, uh, someone to 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 uh, go to war over chips. Uh, wars might rather happen for ideological reasons. Um, 
It's great to hear such an optimistic assessment. Yes, that's uh, the optimist realist speaking me. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Julian Kamasa, for guiding us through this uh, very interesting issue of chips and how they're made and how important they are and what they might mean in terms of geopolitics. So thanks very much. Thank you for, for having me. And I'm, I'm happy to have contributed uh, something in here and shed some light. Uh, there's still a lot of nitty-gritty in this industry. But yeah. Giving an overview uh, was a pleasure for me. Thank you.